0: Some disappointing lack of stuff in the post today. Was expecting, was expecting something to arrive. Maybe a knock on the door, the sort of thing you have to sign for. But nothing. Just you know, a couple of flyers for for blind companies, which is all we ever get. And I'm pretty sure it's Kate's fault. Have you Have you checked the? the doorstep is it not just yeah, no, nothing, behind, not, a plant nothing, not nothing a behind behind the wellies which i shouldn't
1: reveal but is our <laughs> secret a safe, hiding place that's the safe place <laughs> Talking to which, i should be i should be getting a um a dpd delivery of sand uh because spoiler alert the son is getting a sand pit for his birthday and Ooh. we need bags and bags of sand and um so at some point i might either go and Pick up that delivery or just ignore mm. it. But I also got a message from Amazon today saying, unfortunately, um, your order of five times kicking back the new autobiography by Nade Manure has been delayed and will not be delivered to you on today, launch day. So maybe, Rory, you haven't got your free copy because I'm sure that's what you're alluding to. That is definitely what I'm alluding to. Where's you my free copy? will not be getting your free copy because if I don't get mine, you don't get yours. Uh, I,
0: you know me that I'm not, I'm not big time in any way. But the one, the one concession I have made to, to kind of this, you know, the the standing that I've developed, I sound like Chinch now, <laughs> the to the standing I've developed is that I I basically refuse to pay for football books. They they should yes. they should be given to me. It's Absolutely. but I have. Do you know what? Hugh, I have read *Kicking Back*. Yes, you've had the PDF coffee. Is that not enough? I've read it in PDF. Um, No, I don't like reading on a screen. I'm not a Kindle user, Um, so it was uncomfortable for me. I stare at a computer enough. I liked the pleasure of reading, which, as you can imagine, with a three and a half month old baby, I do loads of. Um, (laughs) And it's, it's. I was Steve. I was surprised by the book (laughs) because although I knew that with it being Nedum, it would be frank and honest and interesting. But I did worry that Hugh's involvement would make, would make it rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> Hugh's involvement would get in the way of the storytelling. The, I just thought it would it would be very Hugh. <laughs> and the best thing I can say about about kicking back with Ned is that is that it's not very Hugh. And he's done really well to to keep himself out of it. Yeah, my, it's my, a my really favourite book. <laughs>
1: F- funnily enough, why why didn't you make that the blurb that you submitted for the back cover instead yes. of what you actually said, which was? Beautifully written and lovely and a great thought, but don't very, lie. Very, I, very I, full I of sent you
0: a, I, I sent you a succession of adjectives and said choose the ones you like the most. <laughs> That's all I did. The um, but I need to put, I've got a bone to pick with you about that. You did not tell me that
1: I was being bumped off the front by Ian Wright. Oh, you weren't. I, I never at any point suggested you would be on the front. Oh, come on, Ian Wright. <laughs> You're right. In fact, that was, that was a, a decision taken out of my hands anyway. By? The publishers. I, and who were the publishers? They are Biteback, and it's available at all good bookstores. RRP, £20, but cut, pr- cut price online. Well, I would worry, reckon- much, as, much
2: as it. It's clearly demoralising for you to have not yet received your copy mm. and to have been bumped off the front cover. Imagine low. having to go from the joy of receiving a personalised free copy as I have, in fact, already done. Didn't, well, it didn't require post, that's don't why.
0: Ru- don't rub it in. To,
2: to flip over the book and to see that there is a, uh, a statement of support from a Match of the Day commentator that isn't me. That <laughs> isn't, isn't his friend. Who, who is it? Another Guy Match of the, It is Guy Mowbray. Guy Mowbray. I mean, admittedly, but, a, a, a bigger hitting Match of the Day commentator, but
0: it would have at, night, at least you were asked. The The thing about Guy Mowbray that you need to remember, Steve, is that Guy Mowbray is a respect respected literary reviewer. That There is no, <laughs> yes. you know, there's no question that Guy Mowbray, in a lot of, he's a bit like the Richard and Judy book club for the for the TikTok generation is Guy Mowbray, so I can see why Hugh's gone down that route, but that is deeply offensive, and I, I, I like the fact that Hughes made the leap to author, which does feel a lot like he's parking his tanks on my lawn. Um, <laughs> And, and immediately forgotten his friends. I think that's great.
1: Well, I can, we, I should, mean...
0: we should tell the listeners that Hugh is sitting there wearing sort of horn-rimmed spectacles and, <laughs> and a black polo neck because he now regards himself as some sort of literary giant. Look, the, the main takeaway
2: from this, Rory, is that Hugh has got a book out, and in one way or another, you and I are both incredibly disappointed by it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: This is Set Piece Menu, breaking into a hiatus for reasons of financial gain that are not book-related on this instance. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, Chief Soccer Correspondent of the New York Times, and Stephen Wyeth of BT Sports and kind of match of the day, just lesser than Guy Mowbray. It's basically the same. If, If I'd got a citation for the back cover from some sort of you know, random staff writer at the New York Times. That's the same as asking Steve to do it on behalf of Match of the Day. Um, Now, a lot of you who listen don't engage with or have access to social media. It can, after all, be a hive of scum and villainy and Rory Smith. So we start with a little announcement that isn't, again, book related. The live show is back on. Woo! Thank you. At what point do I leave a gap for, for the inevitable reaction? Hence our necessity to break into the hiatus, which is fast becoming so revered that I might have to start writing it with a capital H, uh, We need to sell tickets. Uh, SPM Live is on Wednesday, the 20th of July. It's part of the Goals Allowed Podcast Festival. We line up alongside other popular podcasts such as the Guardian Football Weekly and ones that people listen to. Uh, we'll be at 21 Soho, which sounds very, very, very fancy, and indeed is a very cool comedy venue in central London. Uh, so let's all hope that uh, you find us funny. Um, but the three of us will be joined by a special guest. Uh, more details of who that will be will be announced on the podcast very soon and um, some housekeeping if you bought a ticket for the council december show that is still valid congratulations i don't think many people turfed theirs in so we're starting at a good level already if you now cannot make it on wednesday the 20th of july at 21 soho you can get a refund from where you bought your ticket and if you haven't got one yet you can do two things very simply: either Google "Goals Allowed Podcast Festival" or head straight to myticket.co.uk. That's myticket.co.uk, the same website as the previous show. You will see us everywhere on the front page. It's very easy to find us there. Tickets are twenty four pounds seventy five. Now, this is a slightly slightly different price point, but you'll notice that it is with the fees included, so it's the same but it's the fees included. So we wanted to make sure upfront exactly, you are sure about what you'd be paying. Tickets are £24.75. Uh, we promise, we promise to make it worth your while. It will be a very special night uh, for a lot of reasons. We'll be telling you why in more detail over the course of a mini run of pods between now and then. A mini run is deliberately vague. Uh, talking of which, the football today is this. Why does the game keep doing things that benefit the big clubs, reforms, reviews, root and branch whatevers. But one thing that persists throughout is that at the end of all the talk about change, it appears that those who wielded money and influence before it will continue to do so after it. So that is to come. Um, any thoughts on the fact that we have resurrected the live show, Stephen Rory? Excited. And it feels, like, it feels like an upgrade in venue
2: as well. Maybe we should fail to turn up more often. We'll be at the Apollo <laughs>
1: Or That's like, Carnegie like, Hall. Or... My wife, who got a uh, a promotion Wembley. during maternity leave. It's just like, when when you're not there, they value you more and you get bumped up. That's what happened.
0: The I, I am also excited, but mainly because I've now realised that if we're at 21 Soho, then we can probably go out for a really nice meal afterwards. That, that <laughs> strikes me as being the sort of thing that I could definitely get involved with.
2: It sounds like the sort of place that rather than a bottle of beer and a few Kit Kats and crisps... Our, our rider, you know, we can, we're can. we talking cocktails, aren't we? And, and, and sushi.
0: In, Chinch, in Chinch's honour, should we go
1: out for a Chinese and spend all of the podcast thinking about what we're going to eat? <laughs> we absolutely should. In fact, we should take any menu for any potential restaurant that we go into and sit there ruminating over it. That might be one half of the show.
2: A mistake-laden final
1: five minutes of the live podcast <laughs> whilst we peruse the menu. <laughs> But how many prawn crackers? Um, So yes, Google Goals Allowed Podcast Festival or indeed just head straight to myticket.co.uk on the 20th of July as part of the Goals Allowed Podcast Festival. SPM Live uh, is back. Now you can email the pod at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. No complaints about the live show, please. This is from Alice Allen. Hi, all. Glad to see the live show has been rescheduled. When I told my boyfriend we were going to see the live show of that football podcast I listened to, he responded, oh, cool. We're going to see Mark Chapman and Micah Richards, etc. I shall have to break the news gently to him. See you soon. That's from Alice. Well, I have to break the news to Rory that he's been reduced to an etc there. Yeah, that's, that's great. Also, to be fair, Micah will
0: basically do anything oh, right. to, okay. to boost his profile. So, I mean, if you want me to ask him.
1: We can definitely get Micah. We've had, um, by the way, uh, so many lovely emails since our Au Revoir episode 267, which it would be far too self-indulgent to read out on the podcast. Um, so here's one from Mark Sadian.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Dear
1: SPM, Just wanted to send a quick note to say a simple thank you for the podcast. I started listening in August 2019 with episode one and have made room in my podcast schedule ever since. The insight and nuanced discussion has been an extremely refreshing change from the usual football headline grabbing noise. I never like to finish a podcast and like to leave a few episodes in the bank. I've always assumed that this is some sort of personality defect on my part. But now due to the hiatus, I have finally given in and completed SPM, (laughs) not anymore, Mark. Given the hours and hours of entertainment I've had listening to your voices, it only seems fair that I thank you. Your commitment to releasing a weekly podcast, even during significant life events, both good and bad, is admirable. I don't engage in social media and so never really felt part of the wider SPM community. That means I have only ever taken from your work and never contributed anything back. I didn't even buy anything from Manscaped. I am sorry for my (laughs) selfish enjoyment of your excellent output. Uh, Best wishes to you all, that's from Mark who uh, is from sunny Parkgate on the Wirral. Uh, which, oh, it's nice, um, Parkgate. Yes, which Stephen will remember, and indeed Rory from the day after. Uh, that was the, the, the place that I spent my last night as a single man.
2: Mm. Beautiful. And was, was, sunny- also, was also the place where uh, myself and Billy finally
1: got round to thinking about what might be included in your best man speech. Yes, thank you, thank you for working well, tight I mean, to a deadline.
0: That, that shone through. <laughs>
1: Oh, look, and here's another from Buffalo Colin Boucher. I just wanted to drop you a note to say thank you for all your work over the last five years in producing your amazing podcast. Strange how this one got in. Particularly over the last two years, which has been challenging for everyone. Melbourne has been in lockdown more than any other place in the world. And even now there's restrictions which impact everyday life, particularly socializing. Podcasts have brought me some escape from the endless tedium. SPM in particular has been a massive part of getting me through some hard times, as it really does feel like a community. There aren't many podcasts that entertain in the right way. Laughter, sadness, strong debate, along with providing excellent readings of Jack Reacher novels. It's genuinely been an hour every week of me not thinking about everything else going on, a very welcome distraction from the world that has turned to sh*t. Certain podcasts slash TV shows have actually helped me through mental health challenges, and yours is one of them. That is from Colin, uh, who's in Melbourne. setpiecemenu at gmail.com for the kind of email that we'd never, never stoop to reading out uh, on the podcast. Meanwhile, here's Attila Yaman, who's in Oxford. Dear SPMers, you've really helped me through the last few months and I told my partner yesterday that your hiatus felt like good friends going on holiday without me. She gave me a very concerned look and implied I should get real friends, whatever that means. (laughs) In any case, thank you for the laughs and camaraderie that you have provided me during my cold and lonely morning breakfasts. I genuinely believe it's had a positive effect on my health and I am sure I am not alone. While on the topic of health, I wanted to make a plea for you to add an addendum to Rory's misleading implication in SPM 267 that when looking at the sun, the vitamin D makes his brain fire. Do you remember that back in January on our no. Au Revoir episode, it was a particularly sunny day in Ilkley. Although research suggests vitamin D does act as a neuroactive steroid for brain development, it is not possible to get enough, if any, at all, from sun exposure in the UK winter. He should add there definitely not in West Yorkshire. Not only are there too many clouds, but more importantly, between September and March, the sun does not rise above the necessary 30 degrees on the horizon to actually deliver the type of radiation that triggers the development of vitamin D. Your NHS website has a very helpful explainer on this, including the recommendation that all adults take vitamin D supplements while the sun is not strong enough. Thanks again for keeping me sane and my brain on fire with your insight and humour. Best, Attila Yaman, critically, not MD. So do talk to your GP before hitting the advice of of a faceless online interlocutor um, so thank you Attila
0: I think I mean I think to be honest saying that you can't get enough vitamin D to make you think during winter is sounds a bit defeatist to me I mean you can't do it with that sort of attitude that's definitely right but I, think I, you I, believe, I see it as
1: an excuse to not have to yeah, think for I six mean, months of a
0: year it strikes me as that as though Attila's giving in a bit easily to
1: be honest and finally, another buffalo. Ewan and Hague has made sure to infuriate Rory further with a continuation of poetry-based correspondence. I don't like these emails. I but... was <laughs> I was just about to send you a haiku, which formed the part, the latter part of the conversation that we've had with the uh, the listening audience about poetry. I was just about to send you a haiku. When I listen to SBM two six seven saying that you are taking time off, enjoy your break. And here are the haikus, regardless. <laughs> Here we go, Rory asks Hugh, please, no poems or limericks about football, stop. Uh, or perhaps, and he has a second one, on set piece menu, football poetry and rhyme now really should stop. Uh, delighted to have listened to all 267 episodes so far, says you, and thank you for bestowing upon me the honored status of Buffalo. I also wanted to let you know that my K-pop devoted 13 year old daughter was horrified to find that her go-to store for IU merch, IU as a K-pop singer, if you needed to know, was in fact, T public where I had also shopped for SPM t-shirts and whatever you may think of the opinions of teenagers none of them want to buy clothes at the same store as their dad yeah. uh, anyway best wishes to you all and to your families who have always been part of the show and thank you again for the hours of football discussion and assorted tangential entertainment cheers uh, Ewan correspondence of any kind to setbeastmenu at gmail.com
2: Ewan's haikus sound like they were delivered via Morse code <laughs>
0: I, mean, I think if, we, if we're starting to let sub-par haikus through, then, then we really have to take a long, hard look at ourselves, don't we?
1: Uh, now, just to make sure that you don't think that we've come back for a little while just to sell tickets to a live show or books... Nader Manure, Kicking Back, available right now at all good bookstores. Here's our topic for today. Why does football keep doing things that benefit the big clubs? The European Super League snafu was supposed to bring some sort of reckoning to the game's high rollers. It was a dramatic reminder that the majority of those invested in football would not allow those who had invested the most money to further strengthen their position, and indeed coffers. So why do so many of the decisions made about football's future since seem to favour those who attempted to break away last year. It makes you wonder if it might have been a big power play to get smaller but still significant concessions down the road. Well, here we are, down the road. And we're asking why football keeps doing things that benefit the big clubs. Here to put some flesh on those bones is Stephen Wyeth. There was an article I read very recently. uh,
2: I think it was in the immediate aftermath of Liverpool and Chelsea reaching the FA Cup final, uh, having also contested the the League Cup final, about how few clubs had actually won Mm. trophies in England in the last few years. And since 2013, when Wigan won the FA Cup and Swansea won the League Cup, there have been 27 and soon to be 28 more trophies distributed. And they have been shared between only six clubs. Manchester City have won 11 of them with very probably a 12th to come. And Leicester, really, are the only other outlier. The the other five clubs are the five clubs you would expect to win trophies. And it, it just feels increasingly as though football at an elite level is taking place for the benefit of a carble of clubs. And, and the rest are just sort of bit part players, minor characters in the in the drama, which for some is fine. Look, you know, just being in the Premier League, for example, is a, is a wonderful achievement for a vast majority of the clubs that that contest Premier League fixtures from, from one week to the next. But it does feel as though if we can't stop doing things like expanding the Champions League, which benefits the bigger clubs, and increasing the number of substitutes permissible to five from three, which, whatever Jurgen Klopp might think, benefits the bigger clubs then we are going to continue to head in that direction of travel. And I think one or
0: two, maybe a few more, might start to just find that a little bit tedious. I'm going to ignore Steve's very obvious bait in about five substitutes, which I, he knows I don't agree with him on. Um, but b- broadly, he is right. He, that that a, lot of, a lot of decisions that are made are done with the, with the interests of the big clubs at their very centre. And even the ones that aren't are certainly not made to negatively impact the big clubs. There's no question about that. And I think you have to assume that football as a kind of executive industry is enthralled to its biggest brands. And we know who they are. There's the the six, probably in the Premier League, although I think within those six, there's some that are more powerful than others. There's what, two plus one in Spain, one plus two in Italy, one in France, one or two maybe in Germany. Those clubs are the ones who have the have the loudest voices at the table they have a power base at UEFA that means that UEFA won't act against their interests and will often act in their interests they dominate the European Clubs Association which is the the body that in theory should protect everybody else should should speak with one voice for the interest of the majority of clubs but that they have and this is it is it's one of those things that's quite boring on one level but it's quite it's quite interesting on another that how this very small group of teams have managed to to convince the ECA and everybody else that what's what's good for the big boys is good for everybody else is actually quite sort of smart in a Machiavellian way. Uh, you have the European Leeds Association that re- that represents the um, the leads themselves, but the leads are dominated by the big teams within those leads. So the, the sort of lead bodies are dominated by the big teams mm-hmm. or the interest of the big teams. The whole thing is arranged in such a way that the big clubs get what mm-hmm. they want pretty much all of the time and there's no one to to counteract it there's no there's no one to contradict what what they're saying and that that is the issue that there is no voice for everybody else
2: yeah it's that's that myth that they're able to perpetuate about the idea that say well you know without Real Madrid and Barcelona Spanish football is nothing well Mm. the world didn't stop spinning on its axis when Atletico Madrid won La Liga or previously Valencia there is room for other teams to enjoy success and and as has been demonstrated in england with the the growing support certainly you know where we live in manchester for manchester city is that if another club does emerge and start contesting at the top of the table then interest in them will expand and uh, it may dwindle in one or two other clubs but there will still be the the level of interest that the league as a whole craves just because manchester united are in a bit of a dip doesn't mean they are completely forgotten about. People stop writing stories about Manchester United. They're still a big club. The onus on them is now to come back and try and compete with one or two who've taken their place. But that, So it, it's this idea that that the clubs sell that they need to be big in order for the league and the game to be a success. And that is patently not true, as has been
0: demonstrated. So, the, yeah, the, that's the that's the myth that football buys into as a whole is that football is popular because the big clubs are strong that Mm. what we all want as fans is teams of superstars riding roughshod over, over everybody else 36 weeks of the year and then for four of them or whatever they all play each other and it's all incredibly dramatic that it's kind of super Sundayitis. that's what we have we, we we have been led to believe that football is at its best when the meetings of the Giants carry the most weight and everything is kind of designed to ensure that that remains in place and because of self-interest obviously you can see why the big clubs feel that and why they want to perpetuate that and to an extent you can you can see why everybody else has fallen for it and I do think that's the right that's the right terminology, that it's, it's a trick that has been played, it is wool that has been pulled over people's eyes. Because football has, for the last 20-25 years, been through this enormous global boom, where it has become this, this cultural and social phenomenon. And it's done that on the back of incredible fan bases for Manchester United and Real Madrid and AC Milan and Liverpool and Chelsea and whoever else, all around the world. And so that you look at that and you think, well, what's really important for the health of the sport as a whole is that these big clubs are able to be as big as possible because they will then carry everybody with them. And so if, if you look in Germany, for a long time the logic of the DFL, the, the, the body that runs, runs the Bundesliga, their logic, genuine, Christian Seifert, the former chief executive or president or whatever it was, said this time and time again on the record, their logic was that Bayern Munich basically functioned as a as a kind of walking advertising hoarding mm. for the Bundesliga. Yeah, an ambassador. Yeah, that it was yeah. It was a way of, of Bayern succeeding in, in the Champions League was crucial for the health of German football because what happened was that people watched Bayern and thought, oh, they're good. I wonder if the other German teams are good. It is vaguely theoretically possible that that happened, but but I'm not sure it did, to be perfectly honest. Having Bayern in the Bundesliga would have increased the television value of the Bundesliga rights, no mm. question. And, but Bayern doing well in Europe would have probably had some sort of measurable financial impact on how much the, the Bundesliga could sell its TV rights for. And helps
2: them secure their four Champions League spots by, by Bayern running deep in the Champions League. Yeah. It, it and, keeps the coefficient high, yeah,
0: and that then means that occasionally you might get a Dortmund getting to mm. the final, or a Schalke getting to the semi-finals, or, or whatever, or RB Leipzig getting to the semi-finals. You know, there is an there is an argument that the rising tide lifts all boats, and what drives the rising tide is is the the big I don't know ferry at the front, and that's Bayern Munich. But that is is such a basic reading of of all of those facts. You can see why football has. Has chosen to see to read it like that because you can build a coherent logic mm. around it, but that the fact that that logic has gone completely unchallenged is, I think, genuinely dangerous for football. Th- there is a real problem that has been sort of correctly identified by the super lead plotters, which we have to describe them as, <laughs> which is the fact that young people, in particularly in particular, the next generation of audiences, might not be that interested in football, and so what they've looked at is not just the sort of stupid stuff that Andrea Agnelli suggests, which, you know, sort of boiling football matches down to fi- the last 15 minutes or whatever. But they, they've they basically said what we need more of are more games between the big teams, because that's what people watch. That's what gets the advertising, the, the viewing figures and the, the high advertising revenue and all that stuff. People watch the quarterfinals, the semifinals, the final of the Champions League, because they are contested by the big teams. That's not true. You can see why the big teams want to think that, and you can see why everybody else looks at the evidence and thinks yeah that makes sense we better go along with that but it's not true the reason those games are popular is because the states are high the reason they're dramatic is because the balance of power between the teams is is fine the, the margins are really narrow there is a totally different reading of where football is and what it needs to do to ensure this sort of continuation of this global phenomenon that it's become and it runs totally contrary to what the big clubs want and what the big clubs have been suggesting and advocating for the last 20 years and yet nobody makes that case. And the danger is we're going to slip into this world where, yeah, do you know what? Bundesliga and Serie A and Liga and La Liga viewing figures will start to slip because they're boring. Mm. Because the title races are boring. This has been a really good season in the Bundesliga in one mm. sense. So you've had Freiburg and Union Berlin pushing for the Champions League. You've had two or three really big clubs down at the bottom, battling relegation, went to the final day, those amazing scenes in, mm. St- scenes in Stuttgart when they survived. But ultimately, if your title race is constantly a total non-event, if it's it's a procession and a parade for the same team 10, 15, 20 years in a row, people will lose interest in Mm. in what is essentially the sort of red-letter event of the football season. And simply allowing the big teams to get bigger, to be able to dismiss everybody else even more easily, to collect more stars, all that will do is drive away interest Mm. in anything but the meetings of those teams. It is a self-fulfilling cycle that will end up with a lot of football being left to wither.
1: But you, you mentioned that the European Super League and, and you called them plotters and everything, and and, and I kind of But I did it
0: ironically.
1: Absolutely. And I cynically, or indeed ironically, depending on your point of view, uh, suggested that they might have done it as a whole a whole thing to try and get a little less of a uh, of a movement towards what they wanted. But obviously by suggesting something outrageous and then you compromise, you get a little of what you wanted. H- how is the, the movement that rose up so hastily and so strongly against the European Super League... How is how has that not affected any of these decisions that we're talking about? Any of the of the way that the game is moving forward? Because it seems to me that it was felt so keenly and so emotionally that that would sustain it for a, for for further for longer and in a different context. But it has not been the case whatsoever. Those teams, and it's not it's not just 12 teams i appreciate that there might be slightly more than 12 teams in this in the context of the conversation we're having but those teams are benefiting from every decision as as the the subject today suggests in a way that's not a european super league but it's still on that journey towards it in terms of the reason why the european super league was 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 created in their minds in the first place so what what where's that movement now where's that rising against it where's that understanding that this is kind of the same thing but in smaller 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 steps what is it the creep the creep mission creep mission creep
2: let let me do the simplistic version and then no doubt rory will expand firstly it's because the, the the proletariat's success in terms of fending off the esl was a was a triumph that they felt they could retreat from and celebrate. And what has subsequently happened with the expansion of the Champions League, especially considering there have been some concessions to what the initial proposal was, didn't seem like something that was worth rallying around again. Almost at the, as though we have enjoyed this, we've seen off the European Super League, these. Tweaks seem minor by comparison. All right, there's going to, you know, everyone's going to play another couple of games. The Swiss model, no one really understands what it is. I, I suppose it ties into what Rory has previously talked about in terms of v- the reason that people get so agitated about VAR is because it's got that acronym that you can is, can so easily turn against. And the ESL had the same thing. Whereas a slightly expanded Champions League based yeah. on the Swiss model with a Generosity of coefficients towards the two teams that do best in the Champions League the previous season—that's not going to quite bring the protesters out onto the streets. Just, away, just so. put,
1: make that into an acronym. It's a really long one, but make that into an acronym.
0: It, it feels Steve's right; like it feels a bit administrative. I think there is. a I think that it's really important that that the the ESL was defeated so kind of resoundingly that it did feel as though everybody walked off and. And celebrated and sat on the laurels a little bit. They didn't that that moment of change wasn't seized in any way. But also, I think you you have to recognise the fact that that logic that what's good for the big clubs is good for everybody is really pervasive in football. That and it and it feeds down the levels. So I found it really odd during the ESL Farrago that that you had kind of Christian Perslow and and Steve Parish in particular, executives of of middling Premier League teams. That's probably fair enough to say who kind of stood up for as the voices of, of authentic football. But when it comes to considering how much money goes to the EFL or or trying to, the big problem in English football at that end is that massive cliff face between the Premier League and the championship. That's incredibly dangerous on both sides. And we'll see that again this summer that you you will end up getting, I would guess that, you know, whoever joins Norwich and Watford in the championship before, you know, as we record this, we don't know, will like Norwich and Watford, have an incredibly good chance of bouncing straight back up. You effectively now have 26 Premier League teams. It's just that six of them don't get to be in the Premier League any, at any one time. Purslow and Parrish had nothing to say about that. They didn't want anything to change. They've, they've advocated against having independent regulation. Their view is that the Premier League is fine, leave us alone, let's do what we want. Just don't let the bid teams break away. They are doing exactly the same as the bid six are. They're just doing it at a different level. That it's They are looking after their own interest, their own gravy train, their own kind of financial security at the expense of everybody else. They're trying to be as big as they can be. And I think that if you take those two things together, this is a bit of a rambling point. You have a pervasive logic that football needs the big clubs, which has been embedded in the way that football thinks for a long, long time. Combined with utter self-interest at all levels, that's not really a recipe for for any kind of sub- substantive change or any certainly any sort of revolution that basically there are too many people who can be made happy with the status quo to advocate for real change and what football needs football can solve a lot of its problems by instituting real real simple and kind of sporting change rather than trying to litigate the finances of clubs that's been proven to be a a total red herring and something that is totally ineffective if you try to take measures to institute change on a sporting level I think you'll you'll have more success but nobody wants to do it because everybody's quite happy basically as as long as things stay as they are the people who are currently in power are happy that's what we learned from the ESL
1: yeah if if they're and we we spoke on that occasion and indeed uh, when the pandemic started um, and there were conversations about how to restart and what what was prioritized at the time we talked about self-interest and we talked about each and every little part of football having their own fiefdoms and wanting to protect it but it just it just seemed to me that when When the the European Super League came and went, there was a narrative that it was because of, and I I don't agree completely with this narrative in being the only reason why it it came and went so quickly, but it being that that the real fan, the, the grassroots supporter of football, retained the power to have enough of a say about how football continued... Going forward with these massive changes suggested and then wiped out within days that it just felt to me that that was enough of a strong advocation for something different, that there would be an understanding from within that body, whether it's Gary Neville or or, or somebody else. That they would also be able to, and I appreciate the fan-led review was something that came out of that and, that, and that's another conversation about how that might be instituted going forward and whether it's the right idea or not. But just in principle, the noise, the voices, it's just gone so deathly quiet when these changes that are happening are a small version of what... The European Super League represented
0: yeah, and this is a really easy, cheap line, but you can make a case that there is already a European Super League, and what we are seeing basically is that th- there are i don 't know ten twelve fourteen teams in the European Super League, and every weekend they get a warm up match before the real business of the European Super League begins because ultimately no you know I act get into the semi finals of the Champions League. Is a total outlier. There is Villarreal have done it this year. Th- those teams are occasionally tolerated as, as outsiders and freaks of nature, effectively. But you know, the bulk of the semi-finals, quarter-finals, it, you, you can name six of the clubs that will make the, the the quarter-finals unless they run into each other because of some kind mm-hmm. of accident of of the vicissitudes of fate or whatever. You can make the case that that has already existed, and I think there is a complacency. And Steve touched on this. There is a complacency amongst fans that we we have. Accepted the way things are, and you then get this mixture. I can't tell if I can express this quite right, but the fans of the big clubs ultimately might know that their clubs are acting against the broader interest of football, but that, that, that will stop short in most cases from people acting against the interest of their own club. That that criticism that we saw around the ESL in those few days was very much the outlier. No one, no Chelsea fan is going, is going to go take to the streets because there might be a fifth. Place in the prem, in the Champions League for a right, Premier League yeah. team. That's not in. That doesn't meet that bar. And the fans of the other clubs will object. Of everybody else will object on a on a fundamental level to, to what the big clubs are doing. But ultimately, if if as we've seen at Newcastle, and a while ago at City, ultimately what those clubs want, what those fans want, I think, and this isn't meant to be a criticism particularly, is they don't want to break up the cartel they want to join it yes be part of it yeah there's not a desire to say... so you can say if if i was to sit here and say that what we need to do is totally overhaul um the way football works in in terms of recruitment and signing players and money and squad building and institute limits on who can who can have which player most fans would say no i don't want to do that It's most what a lot of fans want and have been taught to want is their club to have the ability to spend money at the rate of the bid six or the bid fourteen, not
1: for the bid fourteen to come down to their level. Which is why I, I think I don't agree necessarily with the narrative alone that it was the fans that saved football. It was it was not just them. I can appreciate that that they that the ESL provided a demarcation line, a, a kind of a closed shop, and that was a phrase that was used at the time. A, a kind of at a dismissing of aspiration because people wouldn't be able to support clubs that had a chance of getting into that and joining the cartel in the way that you just said, Rory.
0: Well, yeah, I and mean, I think you have to, this isn't as, as kind of, this is not kind of as man the barricades as, as it ought to be. I think the fans, the, the outpouring of anger, especially in, in England, was incredibly important for providing a visual, impactful kind of gauge of how unpopular the idea was. And that would have made each of the clubs that faced those protests. Yes, I think twice. And we should point out that not not all of the clubs had quite as many protests as the others. Yeah.
1: But but the, you're right. V- visually, it was important to it, send a message, even though it wasn't necessarily a, a clear or a message that was clear in the minds of those people sending that message.
0: I think that fans fans generally that is the one impact they do have. And you saw that with that like the green and gold thing at Manchester United. That 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 was a way. Once you have a, a strong visual, people will band together behind mm. it. Um, but it it wasn't just the fans. It was also other forms of self-interest. It was a battle between two different forms of self-interest and one form of self-interest One, and that was the self-interest of UEFA wanting to protect their cash cow. It was the self-interest of... This sounds terrible, but Sky... I mean, the reason Sky was so hot on the Super League was because Sky's fortunes are tied to the Premier League, mm. and there is no guarantee... That Sky would have the TV rights to a Super League. It might, it might go to Prime or you know someone else, yeah. Disney Plus. The, was, you know, so... that was
1: fairly naked.
0: I would, yeah, I would suggest it, it from was... those who understood the reaction from Sky. And that sets the tone. The way that Sky, the, the way that Sky responded, set the tone. I'm not saying for a second that Gary Neville's objections to it weren't sincere and deeply held, but I think the re- part of the reason they were given quite so much airtime on Sky was because Sky didn't want this to happen. Neville himself you know has has advocated for for independent regulation which is really important um, he was a big part in trying to get the the, the fan led review to be taken seriously to be to be given some weight but you also have to question gary neville's motives just he's an owner of a club and it, a club that has spent an awful lot of money at a much lower level is that really He's not. He, Gary Neville is not a neutral yeah. observer in this at the, all. The progress Even of
2: that club could have been impacted by a yeah. Super League.
0: Even aside from his affiliation to, to Sky and the fact that that's his employer, Gary Neville is not a neutral observer. I'm not saying that that's that's not really a criticism of Gary Neville. It's just we we, we have to acknowledge that Gary Neville comes at it from mm. partly in thinking about what's in what's for the good of Gary Neville. And it's like we're h- history
1: GCSE when you were told that you don't just take the document as evidence; you question. Where that document came from, and how reliable a source it is in providing that evidence
0: exactly and i'm i I'm not for a second saying that we shouldn't all think what is in the best interest of Gary Neville about every decision we make in our lives, but <laughs> i I think to pretend that that what happened was that the people spoke with one voice and that and it was a kind of popular coup is is just not right. It was one set of entrenched interests overcame another set of entrenched interests for the
1: time being and that is why. I think perhaps it has been a non, an unsustainable voice because it was, in essence, more fractured than it might have uh, appeared at the time. And well, therefore, it's... it's hard to sustain it because it isn't a unified voice and therefore it doesn't have that kind of momentum to take it through into these smaller, as we said, more more administrative issues that are being faced each and every week. And what you, what you ultimately
0: have is, is the people who objected most strongly and most visually impactfully were the fans of the clubs involved in England, most of the clubs involved in England, and ultimately they will not do... If you said to a Liverpool, you know, Liverpool fans or or Arsenal fans or Manchester United fans who were furious about the ESL, if you said, OK, look, this is a great starting point, you've done really well here, what we need, need to do now is to address competitive balance within the league, we need to find a way to make your teams weaker or better, the other teams stronger, they're not going to take to the streets for that. And that is what needs to happen, because th- that is the thing that has been missed from all of these conversations is that the reason that the Champions League, the end of the Champions League is popular isn't just because the states are high because they're the biggest games of the season and it's not, ju- it's not just because it's big teams involved it's because what draws people into football are well-balanced games and what football doesn't have enough of are well-balanced games. Yeah. You have to address the competitive balance within Leeds and between Leeds and until you do that football will keep walking down a road where more people lose interest, more people become disenfranchised and that there's ever greater way on the big clubs to carry everybody through but that will get boring after a while
1: C- case in point um, when spurs and i appreciate spurs were were one of or are one of the big six but they're at the bottom of that big six when spurs and ajax played that champions league semi final it was historically entertaining and interesting and amazing and yet it involved two clubs that weren't involved in the final stages of champions league usually would want you know may well have been involved in the European Super League, but aren't the traditional one of those teams that you would have in the Final Four of the Champions League. And yet it was still just then saying it's because, as you say, Rory, it was a game that was entertaining involving two very well-matched teams. It doesn't matter what the identity of those teams are. What matters is is that they provide us with the very best of what the game can offer.
0: But what's an, what, what infuriates me more than anything is that UEFA know this because UEFA have done it twice in the last few years, where they have happened, they've hit upon that very key understanding of football, and they've created something that's been a success. And the first thing of those was the Nations League, where they worked out that if you get the yeah. get countries to play each other, when the standards are relatively matched everything's much more entertaining and lo and behold I'm not a massive fan of the Nations League but lo and behold they are more entertaining than friendlies and they're certainly more because
1: entertaining. Steve always brings up the Nations League so you've probably I beaten think it's him really, too. no it. I think the
2: <laughs> Nations League is brilliant for that very reason and I think some of the smaller nations have been able to use it as a platform to improve their performances in traditional qualifying because rather than playing 10 games a year that they have absolutely no chance of winning, they've now started playing a handful of games, which give them an opportunity mm. to have a morale boosting victory, to work tactically towards improvements. And that has been reflected by a a sense that they don't have to be anxious about qualif- getting drubbings in qualifying because they've got a Nations League around the corner where they're going to be having these opportunities to to improve their their world ranking.
0: By playing more games against teams that they are they are better balanced with, and presumably I think they get coefficient points as well, which helps with yeah, exactly with qualification and stuff. And the other example is the Conference League, which everyone in England certainly laughed at when it was first launched, yeah. but has proved certainly among the teams in it to be incredibly popular, yeah. including Leicester, who would have you, you would have almost expected to treat it as a as you know, as, as stoke used to treat Europe as an unwanted inconvenience of the, about the real business of finishing ninth well, in the Premier Brendan, League.
1: Yeah, but Brendan Rogers said after they were dumped out of the Europa League and, and put down one competition, he said he didn't know what it was, what it was called or, how you know, what to prepare for. Yeah. So even, even at the beginning of their journey in the Europa Conference League, it was it was still I, some, something of risible quality to Brendan Rogers. I think but it's a real they, shame they, they called it. it.
0: The mm-hmm. Europa Conference lead. I think that's that that is the one massive criticism. In I would this make. country, but, conference
1: yeah. has a has a meaning that it yeah. it won't do necessarily elsewhere. Yeah, it?
0: doesn't. But also, it should, presumably, it's, it's totally meaningless to everybody else. I mean, why why earth would you call it the Europa Conference? They just call it call it the UEFA Cup. Do you know what well, I mean? What, or did, the UEFA Trophy? Didn't you? Was it you that suggested UEFA
1: Vars? <laughs> sorry, sorry, <laughs>
2: Steve. Uh, didn't I think you came up with the idea that actually what they should have done is sort of almost like have a split the Europa, expand the Europa League, but split it into East and West. Yeah. I Almost have it like as a two-conference conf, Europa League and then, you know, join them together in the latter stages. You know, the,
1: the American model, Stephen, yeah. are you
2: supporting the but American? I think, I think that would have worked really well, actually, because yeah. you'd, you'd have ended up with the same number of teams, the same level of interest and in, and competition, but the,
1: the the pathways would have just been... You know, the, taking some of the travel out of it, and, and make, you know. just on this point, and, it, and it's a pie in the sky. But east and west, bearing in mind that you you want two relatively well matched conferences, mm-hmm. so that when you get to the final, you've got one east, one west, and it might be that the west always wins. Maybe do it north south, split Germany halfway yeah. down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Bayern are in the south, but all the Premier League teams I are in the north. We're not being ambitious enough. Could we not have had north central? and south <laughs> okay so or can we have a hexagon
0: <laughs> yeah but, but just greece with, in the bottom right <laughs> regardless of your nonsense ferris the um the conference leaders proved that you can just invent a competition out of thin air have it met with total sort of risible dismissal and nine months later have jose Mourinho crying about it yeah. do you know what i mean like it is like we we give these competitions meaning; they mean what we want them to mean. If we take them seriously, they are serious. And what makes for good viewing, what makes for compelling games, are not necessarily the identity of the teams. It's the the balance of ability between those teams. So Slavia Pride against um, Feyenoord does not sound like a classic Champions League tie, but it was a it was a thrilling home and away matchup mm. between two teams who were basically as good as each other. And now Feyenoord have got a European final to look forward to. So. I, I find the fact that UEFA have managed to, to work this out and yet not not sort of manifest it at all in their approach to the Champions League deeply distressing and annoying. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and they, so might think, talking... they might think job's done. That's, that's the thing. Yeah. They've, done, they've done that. They've kind of ticked that box with the Conference League. It doesn't, doesn't need to find its way into their thinking with yeah. any other competition because they've now done it. And and any criticism that comes their way, they can say, well, look at the Europa Conference League. W- what more do we need to do?
2: And, and still be floating the idea of... a. Week of semi-finals and final of the Champions League, which would take away all the drama and excitement that we had this season. That's
0: that's a, yeah yes, that's a slightly different type of bad idea. And I <laughs> I think in that in that one in that case, I can understand again why UEFA think that might be a good idea. I am not in favour of it, but I can understand why why there would be people who thought, okay,
1: do you know what that, that might work. Um, you, we'll finish our conversation with two things. One, one we've mentioned already. Um, the second we haven't, which was on Stephen's original text suggestion. Yes, the WhatsApp group has been fired up once more. Um, it's the five but subs, not the not the one that not that one that this that one. It's designed to to do Manchester City down or whatever. <laughs> yeah, the um, the the five subs, and also Stephen. We'll do this quickly first. Is the the agent regulation because obviously plans. Long talked about yeah. plans to try and regulate agents and trying to cap the amount that they would earn. Haven't been put in place yet. They are mooted. They are detailed in some some instances about what would happen. But if you're allowed to pay pay, pay agents the likes of which Manchester City have paid, both the agent and indeed the father of Erling Haaland, yes. um, how, how can anybody other- compete? I pre- appreciate nobody apart from Real Madrid potentially, was competing for Holland anyway. But in other circumstances, if that club has more money to be able to pay the agent and there is no cap on it, then they're always going to be able to get that player.
2: Whatever happens with Kylian Mbappe and what has happened with Erling Holland is a demonstration that the, the transfer system as it is, is not fit for purpose in terms of, you know, equity, you know, being a level playing field. But there is... All, all the time that you can have a deal like the like the Harlan deal happen in plain sight, you are going to have the the top players being available only to a very, very small group of clubs and, and I can't understand why you wouldn't get on top of that because not only are those clubs able to to annex off the very best players, they also have the resources which ties into it a little bit and leads us onto to the five sub thing. To have vast squads, both in terms of first team and their youth system, and they are accumulating talent from top to bottom, which could be better distributed and would lead us more. You would feel to a a leveler playing field.
1: Well, you you said then, Steve, that it moves on to the five sub thing. So I'll let you perform your own segue.
2: The, the fact that you two,
1: who I consider to be <laughs> I'm straight in friends, there in the deep end
2: intelligent well educated men are supportive i don't know about you stephen
1: the... but rory and i have written books
2: yes and, and very good and i have read some of, <laughs> of one <your> of them <laughs> books um, that the, you're supportive of the the five subs thing seems to go against everything that you've talked about in relation to other the, things th- 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 i'm
1: supportive not supportive is, of no, it yeah no no supportive is is too strong i just don't think i don't think it's fair
0: to say that it's It benefits the big clubs. I think it benefits the big clubs but I also think it benefits all the other clubs. And also
1: with most of my opinions about football, it's just that I don't really care enough.
0: Yeah, and
2: that's fine. I don't mind if you don't care but the the idea that it doesn't disproportionately benefit the big clubs, I I can't understand how you've come to that conclusion based on the discussions we've had about everything else. You cannot have you know, I've done this as a commentator, you can't have a cutaway of the Manchester City bench and go, my goodness, there's Eight hundred million pounds worth of talent sat right there. That could be useful at the end of the game, and then cut away to Burnley's bench by comparison, and not say that having the use of five substitutes is much more beneficial to Manchester City than it is to Burnley. For example, just blows my it's, mind.
0: It's to me, it's downstream of the of the bigger issue that y- yes, obviously City have better substitutes available than, than Burnley, but they also have a much better they have. They have better first fourteen available yeah. than Burnley, so all that happens is you have a continuation of the imbalance. It doesn't. I don't think City get an advantage from having five subs any more than they do from having three subs. They still have far better players than Burnley. So to me, the it's but it's they're not, getting
2: to use they're getting to use more of those vastly superior players rather than having eleven to fourteen much better players than Burnley. Suddenly, they're able to use. Sixteen of their much better players than Burnley, and it also the, the the knock-on impact of it is, is that it's it's the you want to be trying to discourage these clubs from annexing large numbers of players to holding on to youth talent maybe longer than they would do to have these squads where actually they can't decide who they're submitting as their twenty-five players because they've got twenty-six or twenty-seven that would be more than capable of doing a job for the season so it's actually going to further restrict the distribution of talent because they can offer first team football to more players
0: now during the course of a season that is where i would agree with you i think that that's absolutely right that if five subs as i think it will becomes kind of standard for the future you do that does then impact the problem of distribution of talent and I think that
2: player who might otherwise agitate for a move because they're not getting regular first team football suddenly is going to get the chance to play 10 more games a season even if it's only the last 10 or 15 minutes
0: yeah that that no on that one I've got to say I would I would agree with Stephen completely I I don't a lot of the arguments initially I thought were 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 basically wrong about I think that I think five subs had to be introduced during the pandemic to protect as during that first third of a season because of the workload I think that made sense. I can see why the European leads and UEFA have stuck with it since then to manage workload. I think that is important and that does have to be addressed. FIFA Pro, the Players' Union, talk about that a lot and they are right too that we are asking a lot of of these players' bodies. But I agree with Stephen completely that by allowing clubs to play more substitutes, that will enable the big clubs to attract attract and retain more talent and that is a problem. I would like to see something... That again though, and this is to set up next week I suppose... That's the sort of area where there is no reason why, if there was someone with a, if there was some organisation that could speak for everybody else, that it shouldn't be beyond the wit of man to come up with a solution to that issue, which Mm is something to do with contracts, the right, giving players the right to leave if they're not playing a certain amount of football. Or squad restrictions in terms of young players or homegrown truly homegrown players that have to be included in your squad if you have a a player over the age of 21 who's not included in your 25-man squad for the season maybe they get to walk away that seems reasonable to me um there are measures that could be taken to to mitigate that but on that yes the five subs thing does benefit the big clubs
2: i just also think that we're we're helping out the likes of pep guardiola and jürgen klopp disproportionately because It is those managers of the big clubs that you hear, because they they have the profile as much as anything, complaining about fixture congestion, even though they've got fixture congestion because they're successfully competing in multiple competitions. And because they know they're going to be competing in multiple competitions, they are given a free pass in terms of the recruitment that they are, are allowed to make sure they've got two elite players for every position. And then they fail to use those elite players that they've got for every position during the course of the season and complain about the amount of football that Kevin De Bruyne is playing or Mo Salah is playing or Sadio Mane is playing or Raheem Sterling is, is having to play. And it, it, that, it just doesn't make any sense to me. You can't, you can't say, because of all the competitions we're playing in, we need all of these players. And then six months into the season say, my players are tired because they've had to play so many games. And when you look, well, that's because they've relied on the same core of 14 or 15 players for a majority of those games. They, 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 they are definitely wanting to have their cake and eat it.
1: But you can understand how that argument has merit within the wider Premier League because the, the, the sales of TV rights, as we've spoken about countless times on this podcast, are now not just about... The teams but about those individual superstar global attraction players within those teams and if people like Pep Guardiola and, and Jurgen Klopp are saying well we're, we're going to have this game which is going to be live around the world and I'm going to have to rest Mo Salah because there's not there's only three substitutions so I wasn't able to rest him for 10-15 minutes on all these games which I had a fourth and fifth substitute you can understand that that, that might hold sway in the court of. Right, we need these players playing as much as possible on television for our global audience because our product suffers if those players have to take the odd game off and be rested when in fact they might not have done if they were, if they were afforded the opportunity to come off earlier in other games where they had, had used three substitutes and had two extras.
2: And, and amid a lot of very uncompelling arguments, that's not a bad one, Hugh. But I still think that what you're saying is, is that the managers are effectively wanting somebody else to take responsibility for them rotating their players rather than them taking it themselves. Aren't they Aren't they being paid to make the big, difficult decisions?
1: Um, thank you, Stephen and Rory. As Rory mentioned, next week we will be talking um, with our Hot Takes and Takeaways annual episode because it is after the end of the Premier League season. We'll be crowning an SPN PLPL champion as well. Somebody tweeted the other day, Rory, to say that you were leading overall, which is an extraordinary thing and something that I have not verified. so I'm not entirely sure whether, sure whether it's true at the moment.
0: I, I am not leading overall, but oh, I am... Amongst a- the three of us? Or? Absolutely destroying you two and chitch. Right, yeah. Okay, that's okay. I, what was I actually, think, but I I did think we wanna... should
2: just brush past, very quickly, past right, okay, SPMPLPL
0: next week. I, um, I did check, because I saw the same tweet, and I did check and I was disappointed when I checked my table at quite how bad it is. Oh, right, like, okay, I'm, I, mean, I, I it, It's not like I've done really well at all so it's but you, that all that means is that you lot have done really badly
2: last season it was varying degrees of good it is the complete opposite this time around.
1: So, so bearing in mind that we're going to be having our hot takes and takeaways, a lot of a lot of that conversation, I, Im- I imagine, whether it's SPMPLPL related or not, will focus once again on this competitive imbalance conversation that we've been uh, having today. But before we go, this is from Alan Korkos, uh, who I hope I've pronounced uh, the name of correctly. He is in Pittsburgh, and he says this: "Dear Stephen Bloom, Molly, and Stately Plump Buck Mulligan." I started listening only a few weeks before the au revoir episode and was hooked immediately. I cried laughing at Rory's ode to the Lutka. Um, We fry them in schmaltz and have them with caviar and cream, says Alan. Extraordinary. As I take solace in consuming past episodes in a reverse order, surreal, memento-like fog, I long for a new episode for me to enjoy very soon indeed. Here we are, Alan, but before he goes and before we go, a brief soccer story. We graduated, says Alan, from a casual national team fans, this is him and his wife, to Premier League groupies in 2012-13 when Fox Sports slash ESPN shared the US coverage of the league. Being able to enjoy live professional sports early in the day was definitely a hook. I haven't been able to stay awake through an evening NBA or MLB game since my now adult children were toddlers. As fans we fell to Spurs for two simple reasons. My wife remembered them from the early 80s growing up in Copenhagen and two they had an American and a Dane in their team. It was a natural fit and we all fell hard for the lads at White Hart Lane even securing tickets to an away fixture at St Mary's against Southampton on December the 28th while in London for the 2016 winter holidays. We had 10th row itch-in-stand seats near the north goal, not far from the away fans section. Now, I knew that visitors got their own space at English Shocker Stadiums, but I had the naive notion that this was merely a way of guaranteeing seats for opposing supporters, something that would never occur to us in America, where away fans, willing to endure the occasional good-natured heckle or rare middle finger, are forced to poach tickets on StubHub and co-mingle with locals. We had no idea it actually had to do with health and safety. Until, to our Hmm. genuine surprise, we were set upon by dozens of orange clad security guards when we stood to politely applaud a Delhi Alley equalizer in the 19th minute. Realizing we were only clueless Americans and not intoxicated hooligans, they tempered their advance but still insisted that we be escorted from the premises immediately for our own safety, conceding that my completely nonplussed 70-year-old mother-in-law could stay if she wanted, having chosen to root for the home side instead." (laughs) She demurred. As we were ushered out to jeering insults from scores of Saints fans, I couldn't help lamenting the lost opportunity to enjoy a half-time meat pie. Uh, that is Alan Korkos with a wee soccer story at the end of this episode. Keep your correspondence and indeed any soccer stories that you have, wee or indeed lengthy, uh, to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. And a reminder, we desperately, desperately, that is in capitals in my script, desperately need you to buy tickets for our live show. It is now being rescheduled to Wednesday, the 20th of July. That's Wednesday, the 20th of July at 21 Soho in London, part of the Goals Allowed podcast festival. Head to myticket.co.uk for yours Right now, please join us. It will be a very special evening. More details of the show to come in the next few weeks. Uh, thank you then to Rory and Stephen, and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed.
0: That is that is pathetic, isn't it?
1: Chucking people
0: out because that, that I mean that when you when you actually t- kind of I mean we've all seen it happen. It, you know we all know it happens, but when you actually stand back and think about it, come on. Rory. I remember seeing some Arsenal. <laughs> Rory. Rory. I remember seeing. I was. I must have told Rory. you the story before. That... Rory, look.
2: Two out of the three of us are tough lads from Hampshire. You've, <laughs> That's true. You
0: have got to protect people from themselves the, if they antagonise folk from the South Coast. I'm, I must have told you the Villa story. Villa nil, Arsenal 3 in like 2014, 2015, something like that. And just in front of the press box at Villa Park, there were three Arsenal fan, no, four Arsenal fans, a family, mum and a dad and two kids, neither of them older than 10. And they, they cheered the first Arsenal goal. In the, obviously in the, in the Villa seats. And everyone around them not only sort of got f- absolutely infuriated by their presence, but went and ratted them out to the stewards as if to say, this is outrageous, these people are sitting in our section. And I've got to say, I've never seen anything more pathetic. The stewards have have to do it. That's obviously, They're obviously under instruction to do it. But for, if you're a football fan, you're sitting in a stadium and you can't bear the thought that quite near you is someone who's supporting another team you really need to take a long, hard look at yourself. I, I I remember going to baseball and stuff in the States, and it is weird that nobody's, you know, dropping C-bombs on the opposing players, but like, you should be able to... To tolerate the the fact that other people support other teams. Come on, we're all you know, we're all grown-ups, except ironically for two of the people who were thrown out of Villa Park who weren't even who hadn't even hit puberty. It was amongst the most pathetic things I've ever seen.
2: Look, Roy, I thought the five sub things was gonna be the thing you were most wrong about today. What do football fans hate
0: more than anything else? Other oh, That football is fans, rival apparently. football fans yeah. having a good time. Yeah, that's true. I just think it's I think I think it's one of those things that we kind of I thought this a lot about the pandemic that, like, we'll come back... Not, not to belittle it at all, but, like, we'll we'll come back in time and think that maybe some of the things that we did were a bit weird. And I do think that if you take a step back and think about, um, about the fact that you're throwing children out of a stadium because they support a different team, I think that is a bit strange.
1: I, I managed to um, uh, secure tickets at Old Trafford to watch a Manchester United match against my team, and I went with uh, my friend... And uh, my team equalised quite late on against Manchester United. But, um, but this but, isn't
0: but... narrowing it down to that. happens a lot at <laughs> <to> Old Trafford. <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: This is a long time ago. This is this is more than 15 years ago. And I, um, I knew, obviously, about the protocol and was not going to be celebrating or cheering the scoring of a goal for my team while sat in the South, now Bobby Charlton stand. Um, so I had to get through it somehow because emotionally, clearly, it was a big moment for me and my friend. So I just squeezed the thigh quite aggressively, meaningfully, yes, of my friend when player scored goal for my team. And it was uh, not only suitable given the environment and the occasion, it was also um, quite erotic.